beautiful and chilly Sunday morning. Um, I'm so happy that we're all here together uh, again this morning to share with one another and to learn with one another in a safe space that's filled with love and compassion and a mutual desire to heal ourselves and our families and our children. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This morning, I'm so happy that Dr. Rick Wallace has come back uh, to be here this morning uh, with us. Dr. Wallace is the founder, CEO, and chief life mastery strategist at the Visionetics Institute and the author and publisher of 24 books. There's probably been more since we last spoke with Dr. Wallace, but 24 books, uh, including his most recent book, which is called Academic Apartheid, Special Education, Disproportionality Against Black Boys and More. Dr. Wallace created the Visionetics concept for optimal personal development based on nearly three decades of academic study, research and experience in the areas of behavioral psychology, neuroscience, personal development, metaphysics, quantum physics, neuro-linguistic programming, psycho-cybernetics, and spirituality. And that is a lot. Dr. Wallace is one of the leading minds in the area of personal change, achieving an exceptional rate of success with his clients. Born in the late 60s to a 15-year-old mother and an absent father, Dr. Wallace was taken in at the age of nine months by his great-grandparents, and they legally adopted him when he was two. He is a devoted husband to wife and author Marion, and a proud father of 13 children, ranging in age from 36 to 7, and a three-year-old grandson who we have had the pleasure of meeting here on this call. Uh, in the past, and hopefully he'll pop in today if we are lucky. Uh, This morning, Dr. Wallace is going to discuss with us how we can better parent through crises and trauma, um, and what we're all seeing um, in the news, whether it's the deaths of several celebrities or the children of some of our friends and loved ones, um, how can we be better equipped to deal with our children that are struggling with some form of mental wellness issues. It could be depression, it could be anxiety, it could be both, um, and or addiction issues, which also could be both, as it is in my case. This need is especially relevant with dealing with young Black males. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Wallace to inform us about the latest stats and to give us some tips today on how we can be better parents in the midst of all of this. So thank you for being here, Dr. Wallace, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. First of all, thank you. As always, it is an honor uh, to be here uh, and to share. I hope what what I 
uh, present today gives everyone uh, something that helps them understand whatever situation they're personally dealing with. Uh, let me first start by saying parenting under any circumstance is a challenging endeavor, one that we are constantly learning and evolving, uh, even after our children become adults. I was just sharing with uh, a friend of mine what Friday uh, that I personally believe parenting adults is more scarier uh, than parenting kids. Kids, you sort of have a level of control. Um, don't go here, sit here, you're not going end of story type thing. Uh, parenting adults, you hope you've given them enough uh, to equip them to navigate these labyrinthine corridors we call life. Uh, in any stretch, when you start to add in uh, mental conditions and certain forms of psychosis and, and uh, what we classify in the realm of mental illness, um, you definitely complicate the dynamic of parenting um, and it, it tends to exacerbate itself as the child grows older uh, because life comes more complicated for one. Uh, the ability to engage and intervene becomes more difficult because children get to an age where they think they have it all figured out. They know what's going on and they don't want to be parented. Well, what I want to talk about is a couple of things. I want to keep the conversation, well, the presentation, I want to keep uh, sort of narrow and to the point uh, we can expand when we get to the Q&A. Um, over the uh, last few weeks, we've seen a number of different deaths, primarily young black males, but we did lose a celebrity um, in uh, Chesley Kissed, um, who had became pretty popular after winning Miss USA uh, back in 2019 and was in all, I mean, uh, uh, assessments doing fabulous in the growth of, and expansion of her career. She was already successful. She was an attorney. Uh, she had a lot going for her. And that's one of the things I think you first have to understand when you start talking about any form of depression is it doesn't look like, always look like how you think it looks. Uh, she was a functional, um, she was fu dealing with a uh, high, high, you know, a high level of depression, but it, she was fun functional. Uh, it's just like dealing with a functional addict. Um, you have to be very careful in observing them to know what's going on uh, so that you may be able to um, interact with them, intervene with them, and hopefully help them. Uh, so there are two things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about causes. I'm going to talk about how to recognize it. And I'm going to talk about some of the things that you can do. And I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat, one of the most helpless feelings is to have a child that's struggling with some form of mental illness or some form of an addiction. Um, there's only so much you can do because as they grow into their selves, they have to want it. Uh, there comes a point in time where your desire for them won't be strong enough to move them. They're going to have to do it. And that's a very helpless position. So you also have to know how to manage the weight, emotional and psychological weight that's going to land on your shoulders because of your care and your concern and your love for your child. But um, let's talk about depression because when we start talking about suicidal ideations, we're talking about something. Uh, and the reason I chose depression is because um, 
it can be triggered by addiction. It can be triggered by aging. It can be triggered by an abusive relationship. It can be triggered by becoming extremely ill. And in some forms, uh, in some instances, it is uh, there are genetic influences. And then when you start talking about genetic influences, it becomes even more complicated because it's considered a com complex trait. And what that means is it is more than likely triggered by multiple genetic interactions and upregulation of certain genes and so forth. So it's not like, okay, that's just one depression gene. And if it's triggered, it's, no, it's a lot of different things happening simultaneously. And here are some things that, despite what the recent news is telling us that most people don't know, women are literally twice as likely to become depressed as men. Um, while there are no substantial studies that can give you definite uh, conclusion as to why one of the su su suppositions is simply uh, the major hormonal shifts that women uh, experience over the course of life, uh, that lends to it. Um, and so there are other things that it will, and when it comes to Black women, probably the highest group, and while we know that Black women will tend to uh, report the feelings of depression, they don't necessarily seek the help that they need. And so that creates a problem, i.e., uh, according to Chesley's mom, her best and closest friend didn't know she was depressed until maybe a week or so before she killed herself. And so that's your partner. That's who you're hanging out with, and you were able to hide it from them. And so and then there's also this thing with Black women, uh, the strong Black woman. I can't show weaknesses because this country has never favored weakness in me. You know, if I show a weakness, I'll be devoured. If I show a weakness, I'll be looked at in a certain way. So I have to show up and be the strong Black woman. And that ends up, you know, I think one of the most ugliest truths, and I may be a slightly a little off, but I'm going somewhere. One of the ugliest truths about this whole thing is this narrative of the strong Black woman. Do I think she's strong? I absolutely know she's strong. I know she had to be strong to get through everything she's had to go through, but my problem is, why does she have to be? And until we deal with that, until we deal with why she has to be, we're going to deal with issues on the back end of what happens when she's having to constantly reach into the reserve of that strength. On the, on the other side, you have Black men who are statistically uh, not as, uh, well, are not as at risk to become depressed as Black women, but are a lot less likely to report it, much less get any type of help for it. And that comes again with all of the different things that you deal with and the conflict and the engagement um, uh, parents getting divorces uh, is, a, is, is a big call against young boys under the age of 20, a bunch. But one thing that has really alarmed me over the last few years is the rapid uh, rate of suicide on young Black males, and specifically under the age of 25. In fact, there's a study released in 2019 um, that show no it was released last year it uh it measured between 2013 and 2019 
that the suicide rate between Black males between the ages of 15 and 24 increased 47% in that short time frame. That's catastrophic. That's a major blow, not only to the individual homes uh, that housed and the families that loved those young Black men, but to the Black community as a whole, where there's already a shortage of functional and engaged Black men. Uh, it is catastrophic. And so then we look at, okay, with these numbers and increased numbers, uh, we look at just over the last few weeks, we've had a couple of celebrities uh, who have uh, lost their battle with depression, uh, is the way I choose to phrase it, lost their battle with depression. And, you know, you get to hear about it. Uh, but this goes far beyond that. And what I try to get people to understand the correct to gain context about this is for every one of these celebrities that you get headlines on, just picture there are thousands of others that whose name will, you will never know, um, that will never get any press, that will never be mentioned, but are as equally important as the person in the headlines. And their families are equally devastated in the same way. And we need to be aware of this. Uh, I remember dealing with the young kid uh, in Florida and his cousin who was again suffering from depression, um, who killed himself. And I think we talked about him, you know, back when it happened. Um, you know, I mean, in every sense of the word, his life was about to change, but he was bearing the weight that he shouldn't have been bearing of being the man in the house at 17. He was about to go off on a full scholarship to college, but he was going to leave his mom and his younger siblings homeless. And it's in whatever way that he processed it, it didn't show any out. And so when people talk, start talking about suicide, you know, some of the terms that people tend to use that I don't like is selfish, um, you know, weak, and all of the, and, and I don't see any of that. Uh, first of all, suicide is an irrational action. It isn't something that is properly thought out and taken through the filters of the uh, frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex where we make rational decisions and we use our minds. Uh, it's normally done under stress and normally the prefrontal cortex isn't functioning properly. Uh, so the filter of how you're perceiving things is off. Then you deal with the fact that for someone to sit up and say, I'm going to do something that finite. That means that in their mind, they have considered all of the alternatives, all of the possibilities, everything out there, and they don't see a solution anywhere in the future. So they literally have lost all hope. And so at that point, they've sit up and said, this will never change. Whatever this is, I can't stand this feeling. This will never change. And I can't live the rest of my life like this so in them it's an escape from the torture of the feeling of being depressed and can't do anything about it and also the things that may be uh contributing to the depression so those are some of the things that tells you to give you an idea about it let's talk about how can you recognize it this gets tricky especially the older a kid gets and the more distant they become from you and you don't have the uh ability to observe them each and every day throughout the day. Uh, obviously, people are very habitual in their behavior. 
even people who uh, talk about being spontaneous are patternistic in their spontaneity. Uh, you can you can almost know when someone's about to do something, or someone does things like clockwork. You know where they're going to be, when they're going to be, and it's it's how they do things. It's how they keep their rhythm. It's how they go. But people have certain behaviors that are directly connected that you tend to know them by. When those behaviors change, pay attention. Uh, they're saying something without necessarily saying something. If a person who is normally very, very, very calm and reasonable all of a sudden becomes easily triggered and angry and, 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 and snappy, there's a reason for it. Uh, we tend to attribute uh, any shift in attitude with just being moody. Well, no, moods are created. And I think that's the important things. Moods are created. Moods, people don't just go, you know what? I've been happy. I think I'll just get kind of snappy and catty right now. No, uh, something happens. Even if they don't know it's happening, there's a shift in hormones. There's a shift. A lot of times it's cognitive. There's something going on in the subconscious that's beneath the surface that they're not even aware of. You got to understand you have about 70,000 thoughts a day that take place in the subconscious that you consciously are not aware of, but they're actually happening and they're interacting and they're creating ideas. And if the idea gets enough gravity or gets enough momentum, it comes to the surface and it becomes because it becomes a part of your conscious reality. Well, you can be sitting up and that could be a thought moving under the thing. And, and it could be, you know, about somebody that dumped you in high school, but that thought about being dumped in high school could trigger a thought or and a memory that's stored away way back somewhere that you would never access any other time. But now the brain is on one of those tangents and it goes, you know, she did that, you know, and she did it for so-and-so. And then you go up and now it's not your girlfriend from high school doing it. It's your husband or your wife. And now that, that, that failed marriage is now in there and you still, it's still beneath, but now it's coming. And then all of a sudden you go through, well, you know, now the boss is doing this at work and all of a sudden it comes up. You don't know how it got there, but now you're upset. You, you're catty and, and, and you're angry and you, anybody's that's there at the time is probably going to get the business. And you, you wonder where it's come from. And so one of the things that you deal with, like in, 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 in one form of treatment for the cognitive side of it is cognitive behavioral therapy, where you teach people to recognize these thoughts before they gain momentum and how to turn those thoughts off or how to replace those thoughts with positive thoughts. And it's mental awareness and it's actually biblical principles behind it. Matter of fact, if you go to the Bible, outside of the command to know the word of God, the second most common command is to guard your hearts and minds in some form or another. And what the heart is in the Bible, if you study it and you see the progression of the terminology uh, linguistically, you find out the heart isn't the... Uh, physiological heart, nor is it the heart that everybody associates with romance and love. It's the center of the soul, which we now consider to be the subconscious. And so it says, guard your hearts and minds. It's talking about the subconscious and the conscious. So you need to guard that. You need, what are you thinking that's leading to this? What are you doing? What are you entertaining on a regular basis? Those are things. But so you look at the behavior of a person. You look at, are they a person that's normally on time who all of a sudden they become lethargic and they don't want to do things. One of the most 
uh, noticeable uh, symptoms of depression is lethargy. Uh, you become, uh, you reach a deep enough state of depression, you don't even feel like moving. It's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to find a reason to move because it's got you. And most of us have experienced it on a uh, synoptic level or a shortened period. You know, you had that breakup in high school, man, for about two days, you don't want to do nothing. You're just like, oh my God, my whole world is over. Oh my God. And then, you know, four or five days later, you, you're already talking to the next person or you're back at it because this, the, 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 the real bond, the true bond wasn't that strong. It was mostly emotional and emotional issues. Literally, the connectivity isn't built strong enough. There has to be a spiritual, deeper bond for it to be totally devastating. But it felt devastating when it first happened. Oh, my God. Well, imagine feeling like that, but be not being able to escape it in a couple of days. <coughs> That's depression. Imagine having a feeling of weightiness that you want to cry and don't know why. Imagine having that and being a male who is told that men don't cry. And yet everything in you wants to cry. So now you're questioning your manhood and your sanity. But you can't tell anybody because that's not a space for you. If you tell anybody, you're going to be called crazy. You're going to be called weak. Uh, suck it up and deal with it is the thing. But the problem is... There's no level of sucking it up that makes it better because you don't make this thing better by sucking it up. You're going to have to confront it. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to peel back the layers. You're going to have to come to some conclusion of how this thing started. And you're going to have to make successive efforts in, in a specific direction of exit that is going to lead you out of it. And very few people can navigate that once you get to a certain level without professional help. And attempting to navigate it without professional help tends to get you deeper in and more frustrated because there's this thing called learned helplessness. It's when you try something over and over and over again to a point it never works, you just eventually accept the fact that it's not going to work and you give up. And that's the thing that you've got to learn how uh, to escape. But when you're looking at it from a parent, there are a couple of things and some of it is hard. So I'm going to do the hard thing first. The hard thing is to come to a point to realize that you have reached the apex of your ability to be a part of the change. You've given everything, you've done everything, and they haven't taken the olive branch, so to speak. They haven't taken what you put out there, and they're out there, and they don't know how to figure it out, but they're not allowing you to help them. And you still have a life to lead. You still have other people depending on you. And, and there's a tendency, and it's even a biblical sort of segue to it, because in the Bible, it talks about the shepherd going after the one that has lost and leaving the ones that have not been lost. So you do, you tend to give the attention to the one that is in the deepest trouble, which makes sense. And But at some point, if you're not careful, that energy that you're putting into that kid will start to drain you and start to have an impact on you mentally. 
and start to have an impact on you emotionally and start to affect your productivity in life, in your career, in your parenting of your other children. And if you're married in your marriage, you've got to be very careful of understanding. And that's one of the hardest things for a parent to do, especially maternally. Men tend to deal with it differently because they got this thing, okay, you tripping. When you get yourself together, let me know. I'm here. You know, and I'm sort of that, I'm sort of that guy. I care about all my kids uh, equally but differently. And the adult kids know there's never a time I'm not available unless you're disrespectful. I do not tolerate disrespect no matter what the situation, but I'm available. If you can handle me and deal with me with a level of respect, we can talk about anything and I'm always going to be here for you. But if you don't, you got to understand that. And, and it's real simple with me. You know, on a maternal level, there are some connectivities that means, man, simply, I don't understand. I know it's there. I know it's prevalent. So I have to understand it and respect it. But in, in essence, there is this weight with a mom that's like, this is my baby. You know, and mom's babies never stop being babies. And so there's this, you know, what's going on with him? How can I help him? What? Why is he doing this? Why is he doing that? And that needs to be there. And hopefully there's a situation where you're not doing it alone and the father is there and you guys have to work as a team because there are two different gifts and two different uh, natural and inherent patterns in your femininity and his masculinity and the approach that both lend. That's why it's so important, if possible, to have both parents in the developmental years, especially from birth to about eight to 10 years old. It's really important because the both parents are contributing to the development of that child. And certain things a woman can't mimic that a man has, and certain things a man can't mimic that a woman has. You can do the chores and the tasks, but there are certain things you simply don't emit as a woman. There's certain things I can't emit as a man, and it plays a role in the development of the child. And matter of fact, those can be instances that later on down the line contribute to issues and behavior and other issues with children that we don't talk about. And that's another thing. But what you have to do is you have to look at and understand that first. One of the hardest things to do is to recognize you come to the end of your rope and all you can do now is make sure they understand you're there and then wait for them to reach. And in most instances, there's a point where they reach. If they know it's there and they're not going to be judged uh, because they're real tender, even the men, well, I'll say especially the men will be real tender about it because they feel weak in what they're dealing with. They're frustrated. They feel they lack power. And one of the things that men want is a certain level of control over their lives. And that's why prison is so devastating is because when a young male goes to prison, they lose absolute control. Someone tells you when to sleep, when to eat, where to go, your entire time there. And you end up actually acclimating to it or becoming very, very hostile toward it. And you got to learn how to process that. So, and it also happens at a level in school. And if you notice, there's a disproportionality of special education referrals for young black males in public schools. And it's because the culture uh, within the average black home is so much different than the culture in the school. So the behavior of the young black male in the school. Now, that's a, that's a, uh, a similar uh, offset of behavior for the female, but 
black females are considered intimidating. Even at the age of five, a black male is intimidating in a white public school system where the predominance uh, of the teachers are middle-aged white women. And you can look at the statistics of who does the referrals, the, the mass portion of the referrals, where are they coming from? And all of this is a part of it. So you have to understand the depth of how, how that looks in that. So when you talk about young black males who are dealing with addiction or are dealing with some form of a mental illness, depression, bipolar disorder, um, and things that are common enough that they're going to be problems throughout uh, our community. Uh, the first thing is to, aware if you can get them uh, diagnosed, get them diagnosed. If you Definitely, if they're willing to get treatment, get them treatment. Uh, I have uh, gotten kind of creative in how I approach young black males because they're not trying to hear nothing by talking to a therapist. They're not trying to hear nothing by no psychology, but connecting with them on things that they're passionate about and really getting in there. And the thing is, if you could get someone to see something outside of what they're dealing with, the thing, the, the situation changes immediately and you start to see something. And that's the thing that I, I try to do. Hey, you focused on the wrong thing. And that's another thing that we have to get them to do um, is to stop focusing on the thing that's draining them and the thing that's pulling them in and the thing that's suppressing them and the things that are getting them to feel how they feel because it's a focus. They've given us up. And whatever you focus on, uh, whether you're dealing with depression or not, whether whatever you're focusing on, you're going to feel. And so one of the things I tell my clients all the time is, if you focus on your situation, your situation becomes more powerful than your destiny. But if you focus on your destiny, your destiny is far more powerful than your situation. And so it doesn't matter where you're at right now because you're not going to stay there. And that's the thing that we have to be aware of is you're not going to stay there. No one is stagnant. Nobody's sitting still. But the problem is if you focus on something negative, you create the mindset and the response mechanisms that keep you in a negative situation because we're, we're emitting energy and energy is resonant. And resonance, what that, what that means is energy attracts like energy. It resonates with like energy. So if you're in this down pattern, you tend to find things that keep you down. You also tend to gravitate around other people that will keep you down and who are probably down. Nobody's there, you know, to sit up and say, man, what are we tripping about? you know, let's go do this, let's go do that. And so you find yourself in this place and eventually you start to withdraw. So that's another sign that you look for. You look for changes in patterns, uh, changes in moods, becoming withdrawn and secluded and easing back into a space of darkness. Um, those are some common things. Uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult in the highly functional to recognize it because they're putting on such a front because they're trying to maintain. Uh, what I have discovered, and I don't have any empirical data to support it yet, but I'm currently working on some things. But what I tend to perceive is, and the people who make me the most nervous when I come across someone who's struggling with depression, and I know they're struggling with it, are the functional because you're internalizing. There's no escape. Everything about you says I'm doing fine, but you're not. And we have that on a level with Black men. Uh, black men have been trained 
Hey man, what's going on? I'm good. Hey dog, what's what's popping? Man, I'm good, dog. It's not acceptable to say, man, I'm feeling down. Man, I feel weak. Man, I, I, I'm about to cry and I don't know why. Women actually have that place where they can do that with each other. And it's, a, it's an old girl moment. Girl, come here. Uh, you know, I'm on my way or whatever. There's not this openness. And, you know, in the communities that I operate in, we're trying to create that. And we're doing it with Black Men Lead. We actually created... Um, a new arm in Black Man Lead that's totally focused on mental health. Um, and it's it's about recognizing, it's about pulling people together, it's about acknowledging and then providing resources. Uh, and the thing that to me is the most important is the stigma of seeking help or and admitting that you need help. And we're the only community, and I talk about this, and then I'm going to sort of open up and let people ask questions. We talk about this a lot, the fact that Black men aren't allowed to need help. You, you know, literally, that's a narrative in Black America that's been pushed on us by a construct that wants to create disunity, that if you need help, you're not a man. If you don't have it all together, if you can't do X, Y, Z, 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 you're not a man. So now you're pretending you can do it all. And then the weight of actually knowing that you're not able to do it all is wearing on you. And at some point in time, if you don't reconcile with yourself, it's okay to be in process. It's okay. Can you see progress in your life? When you wake up in the morning, do you see that you may be a little bit better than yesterday? And there are ways to do that. And I teach my clients. Man, something as simple as reading a book changes you. It may not change you in big, huge chunks, but you won't be the person that went to, the person that goes to bed tonight is not the person that woke up in the morning simply because you decided to engage some new information, which is the most powerful form of elevation. When you start talking about energy, you start talking about, people talk about energy. That's that old spiritual. No, it's scientific. You emit energy on a hurt that can be measured on a hurt scale. And it can be measured based on your moods and your mindsets and your thoughts. People who are uh, dealing with negative emotions, anger, envy, jealousy, bitterness, fear, anxiety, worry, are 250 hertz or lower. And they tend to attract and gravitate to other people on that frequency. Uh, on the other hand, you start off with a mindset of gratitude, which you can create. You can create a mindset. It doesn't depend upon your situation or your circumstances. You sit up and say, you know what? That's got to be one thing in this world I can be grateful for. Let's start by the fact that I'm alive. Okay, you know, and I tell people all the time, I wake up every morning and no matter where I'm at in my life, no matter what's going on, I have this, this blessing. First and foremost, I woke up with another chance to change the world. Good for me. Next, I look over and I watch my wife take her first breath. And when I say I take her first breath, again, another blessing. And people say, well, man, what, what about if things, man, it doesn't matter. The whole thing is people look for the wrong things. Now, if I was a person that was looking for something negative, then it wouldn't be, uh, my, my, uh, my idea of gratitude wouldn't be if I roll over and I look and see she's there and she takes her breath. It would be, well, what is the last thing she say to me? Or, you know, what was... It doesn't matter what she said to me last. It doesn't. And the thing is, 
you know, I don't think it's ever anything bad ever said last, but it, none of that depends. The fact is, I've been blessed with this beautiful woman and she's laying here and God says, you got one more day with her. That's a blessing. Then you get up and there are these kids in the house and you sit and go, another day with these kids. But then you laugh and say, man, God must really trust me because here they are. And so now I, before I ever start my day, I'm already on level gratitude. That's 500 hertz, 500 hertz versus 250. Just by saying I'm thankful. And, and, and number one is you can't be thankful and worried. You can't have a heart of gratitude and be angry. You can't have an art attitude and be melancholy. That's something about saying I'm thankful that shifts. And, and it's amazing. And it's a word. I'm yeah. thankful. Yeah. And all of a sudden, wait a minute. And then that's something I teach people, you know, uh, what's called embodied cognition. These are things that you can work with in yourself. You can also, if you can kind of get involved and make it fun, you can get involved with the person that you're concerned about. But I tell them, okay, embodied cognition. You know, for years, we've, we've done this and not know the science behind it. Now we know it's called embodied cognition. We sit up, tell somebody's having a hard day, keep your head up. And, you know, you say it without even thinking. And, you know, it becomes a term, but nobody actually keeps their head up. It's just like, keep your head up. Not, but when you actually say, okay, hold your head up. Your brain is designed to determine the posture that you have. So if I square my shoulders, that's a posture of confidence. If I hold my head up, that's a posture of confidence. That's a posture of certainty. And now all of a sudden, things that seemed overwhelming don't seem so overwhelming anymore. Now, add a smile to it. Now, tell me, when try smiling and being sad at the same time. What's going to happen? You're either going to lose that mindset of sadness or you're going to stop smiling. You cannot do both. And I'm talking about a fake smile that everybody knows fake. Hold it long enough. And it causes the brain to say, okay, they're smiling this long. Something's got to be good. I don't know what it is from my vantage point, but I'm going to ride along with it. So you got this energy. So now then you got love that's slightly above gratitude. But do you know what? And I'm going back to a point I made. I said, I'd like to say this. Do you know what the highest point on the uh, measurement scale, 750, is, <clears throat> is where the scale tops out? Revelation, new ideas, new thoughts, new possibilities. Every time you read a book, it takes you to 750. 750. And the problem is, average American reads one book a year. And I think that it has a, 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 a significant uh, influence on depression. The most successful people read an average of four books a month. There is, and like me, if it's something, a minimum of 10 pages. You know, I'm gonna read, I'm going to read something. And the beautiful thing about this growth is that it's intentional. I'm not reading a book somebody's giving me. I'm going out and I'm finding something that I believe can add to me. I'm choosing it based off what I believe I'm doing and where I'm going. And now I'm choosing to engage it and it's my, and it's a power move. Yeah. And I, we've got, go ahead. I want to just build on what you're saying. Cause all of this is speaking directly to me today. And my little one popped in my little one, six foot tall, little one popped into the office and sitting right behind me. And so I'm saying this intentionally with him and the exercise uh, and the ability to create new possibilities every day, you know, with the relationship 
has been transformational for me through this process, through working with you, through listening to so many other parents and other therapists who have said very similar things. We have the power to create whatever possibility we choose to have. And and the relationship is so much more important than being right. And I have a friend who was fussing with, you know, her child the other day about um, haven't done the laundry, make up your bed while you got food in the room again. And I can, I'm saying that intentionally too, because he does the same thing. You know, we'll have laundry till there's no clue, no clothes left to wear. And at the same time, it's okay. Like I've, I have awakened to a different possibility of it's okay that the laundry is overflowing. He'll do it, you know, (laughs) when he gets ready to do it. And I'm not going to worry myself about it and stress about it. I think that uh, in a situation like that, and I think that that's almost every parent with a teenager. And, you know, you live in these things. And I tend, I think, and, I, and I've told you this before, I think that sometimes we tend to judge our children based on how we were reared. And things aren't the same. And we don't want to acknowledge that. Okay, there are certain things. Principles should remain intact. Values exactly. and principles should remain yes. intact. But processes change. And we'll sit up and looking because, you know, uh Marion constantly reminds me of this because I'm like, oh, this is this, and this say like, like you might want to choose your battles. You know, is it that important that you know, and like you're saying, okay, if you don't wash your clothes, you're wearing dirty clothes, not me. You know, eventually you'll get to them, you know. And then if it if it goes too long, going to say, all right, get this crap up. Enough's enough, get it up. But sitting up and looking like every little piece gotta be in place and everything's gotta be in place. And you know, she tells me I'll you, you, you need to you learn how to pick your battles or you'll be fighting all the time. And so I wrestle with that, you know, just being because I grew up in a house when something was said, it had to be done immediately. It wasn't a question. The next time you heard about it wasn't going to be pretty. And so, you know, that that's how I respond. And then you were, this is a different world. And, you know, the thing is, there are things you're going to really need to assert, assert yourself into that you need the energy for. So I, I agree. I think that we have to be careful in how we engage our our uh, our children, especially when they enter that teenage and that young adult age, because they're starting to engage a new reality about how life is. See, it goes from being a kid and everything's this, you know, the world, and, I, and and all of a sudden they start to see the realities of what happens out there in life as they become more exposed to it, and it brings about a different way of thinking and we have to be cognizant of that. I want to go ahead. I've talked a lot. I want to go ahead and, you know, if, see if anyone has. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. There are a lot of um, people in the chat saying, yes, agree. This is right on time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Does anyone want to come off of mute with a question or a comment, Dr. Wallace? So I think, um, for me, I think I'm thinking about the, um, especially the suicides and you gave us some great things to look for. And if you, the question I have is if you get a sense or a feeling that there's something going on that may lead to something tragic like that, what, what language can a parent use to approach their child? Obviously the language is to avoid our judgmental, accusative, um, dismissive um your child knows you your child knows you better than you could ever imagine 
And they know when they're being talked down to, they know when they're being judged, um, even when you mask it. And so you want to authentically create that space for them that they remember when you really cared about what was going on. And sometimes it's not even a word, it's a behavior. Sometimes it's the smallest thing. Hey, just dropping in on you. I'm just checking on you. Uh, you know, I love you, right? If you need me, call me. And, you know, let it be enough. Um, if there is a sense of urgency, like you feel like, hey, man, we are real close to something catastrophic happening. Pick up the phone and call the suicide hotline uh, and tell them exactly what you're experiencing, um, exactly how they are behaving. And even if they can't get them on the phone, they can kind of tell you what to do. And there may need to be a forceful intervention if it's that bad. And, you know, someone with some experience in these hot moments, what, what I call hot moments, will kind of advise what to do. Uh, you've got to, obviously, when you're dealing with Black men, you got to be careful who you call. Uh, if you're going to need someone and they may need a psych eval, eval under controlled conditions until they realize what's going on. Um, it's right, not- so to that point, looking for a place in our counties, or our communities where they have uh, one of our callers uh, talked about, they have places where they will lead with a crisis team versus the police and they're trained right. people 24 seven and most communities have those. Um, but I, you know, with Kyle once I was looking into that and the question was, uh, that they asked me and I drove out there in the middle of the night to see like how it would work and all that. And they said, are you ready to have him committed? And I wasn't. So at that time, this was after, you know, some of the suicide attempts, but I was not ready to have him committed. I was at my wits end of, and so I'm just saying that I'm concurring that there are those places and that they're willing to come out and do those evaluations. But I wasn't ready at the time, you know, for the next step. I got ready eventually, but wasn't at that time. So I just want to share that out loud too. There's a question in the chat that I want to um, acknowledge um, that says, how do you balance individual empowerment and agency with knowledge of structures and systems? Read that again. I want to make sure. How do you balance individual empowerment and agency with knowledge of structures and systems? Oh, man. I don't think you do. Uh, I think you find your space as comfortable as you can, because when you talk about individual empowerment, that's focused on what you're able to do and how you're able to do it. Where you're talking about agency and structure, uh, you're talking about compliance. And when you talk about compliance, it's more about what's needed uh, in order for you to functional and be pro-social. And there's a balance. There's a balance in anything. One of the things I try to teach my kids is... Life isn't always about what you want. It's about what's necessary. And depending on the level of success you want to live in, there's going to be certain things you're going to have to do that you might not want to do. Uh, I think that you can still sustain and achieve personal empowerment through the process and the means in which you accomplish something. Not everybody's meant to be a nine to fiver, for instance. Uh, Not everybody's meant to do um, serial academia, for instance, uh, 
you know, everybody can find their place where they are empowered by the simple notion of I get up every day wanting to go do this and not because I have to do that. To me, that's empowerment. That's saying I'm in a space that I created for myself and I'm still going to be accountable to certain agencies and systems. It simply is. But I need to be careful about the agencies and systems that do not work on my behalf. Whatever those agencies and systems and things are, you need to make sure that you are functioning in your best interest without harming others. Yes. And it's, uh, I think it's, you know, how do we protect our peace in the midst of it? How do we protect the family relationships if there are other children in the home as well and create some boundaries. And at the same time, you know, letting children just be like what you said earlier, how we were raised so different than how we have to parent today in a completely different space. Right. Um, and there's a patience and there's an understanding that I know I didn't have until going through these last few years of realizing that they're going to be okay. And like you said, they will be fine. So having that faith that all of it is going to work out and everybody's going to be fine because God has them wrapped around him, you know, wrapped his arms around all of our children, they will be okay. And so letting go and releasing that fear is such a huge, huge deal. And to me, and also allowing them to just be, if they want to sleep in, you know, I was also talking to a friend who's like, oh my God, we're late every day at school. We're late every day. I said, so are we. It's okay. It's going to be okay. We're late. It's supposed to be there at 745. We leave the house at five minutes to eight most days. It's ridiculous. And I used, you know, park one side is scream, holler. This is crazy. I can't believe. Other part is, hey, good morning. You feeling good today? Great. I wrote a note for the attendance secretary. Make sure you drop it off. Completely different paradigm. And it works because it's a relationship. And I've just given up on screaming and hollering because that doesn't protect my peace. Right. Um, the thing is protecting the peace. And then I saw a quick response, I think by uh, either Kelly or Andy, I can't remember, but uh, talking about uh, letting go of the fear is hard. Uh, protecting your peace is about setting uh, pre-discovered uh, or pre-assessed boundaries of how you're going to engage something. There, have, there has to be uh, these boundaries that cannot be violated. And there has to be retreat spaces where you can go back into to rejuvenate, to uh, recover, uh, to replenish. And, but there have to be these, but there are certain things that I will not do. And there are certain things I will not tolerate. And those are absolutes. They're not negotiable. And that is where you find your pieces because in that is power. I can change my situation anytime I want to. Now, the, the complex difficulty of uh, letting go of fear is actually uh, the unwillingness of recognizing that it's the familiarity with the feeling of fear that you're actually holding on to. And what I mean by that is you, you, you do something enough, it becomes normal. You normalize it and you take it in. And what happens is 
It becomes a part of you. So you can actually move from a place of anxiety, worry, and fear, and you get out of it. And the feeling of not being afraid is uncomfortable because you don't know it. Uh, I have people talking about this all the time on different levels of different aspects of life. Man, I, I went out and I tried this, but it just didn't feel right. No, it didn't feel familiar. Now you have a choice. Do you run back into what is familiar and destructive? Or do you understand that this is by the simple nature of life and history better than where I was? Now, eventually what will happen is this will become the new familiar. And, it, and I'll tell you a way that it happens genetically and physically. Go from being uh, the average person, person who eats the average thing here and go into veganism for a year. The, when you first in there, you're going, this is bull crap. I don't know. Oh, my. This is now try to go back and eat red meat after a year. You have a new you have a new norm and the new norm, statistically speaking, is healthier. Right, but your body will reject the red meat having been that person. That after you've been that. gone for a while, the body now right. knows I don't need it. Mm-hmm. I don't want it. And I'm not taking it. You can have it. Right. Well, the same thing with, okay, I'm over here. I'm, I'm, I'm stressing. I'm anxious. I'm fearful. But what I can do is one, one of the things that you do to release fear is actually confront fear. The thing, and I've learned the way that I've overcome fear my entire life is by facing the fear. And the two things I feared last were the two things I absolutely refused to face because there was no way you could, uh, there was no way that you could actually intentionally face it. Nobody's going to, the two things I feared were being broke and homeless. And there's no way that nobody's going out and say, I'm giving up all my money. I'm going out here and I'm going to live on the street. So I was like, but that was his great fear. What if I lost everything? And that was my greatest fear. I guess the greatest fear was actually losing everything. And there I was. And what I found is immediately the fear left because I'm here now. There's nothing else to fear because I'm here. And guess what? It didn't kill me. And the thing is, most of the things, do we realize that 40% of the things we actually worry about never even happen? That's a lot of wasted energy. Another 20% of what we worry about already happened. And we're still on that fear. It's gone. It's done. You can't change it. What are you going to do about it? And the moment that you start figuring out what you're going to do about it, the fear leaves. Because now what? You're in problem solving mode. The moment that you decide you're going to do something about what you're fearing, the fear leaves. You have to be intentional. You have to be forceful. And you have to be in place. Look, you know what? I am not sitting up here worrying about this. I'm going to go out and change it. The moment you decide you're going to change it, the brain immediately responds to it, processes it. If I can change it, why am I tripping? Right. That's exactly right. It's a paradigm shift. I want to just say something because I know we're almost out of time. Um, Dr. Wallace uh, is a licensed therapist and does virtual visits, has done some with me and my family and has been phenomenal. And so if anybody is interested I know Dr. Wallace has shared with me that he is taking new clients. And is that correct still? You said that a few weeks ago. Yeah, actually, I am uh, right now. The goal for uh, 
the Visionetics Institute, which is a part of Rick Wallace Enterprises. Uh, Visionetics is my brainchild, something I created almost 30 years ago, and I've been evolving. Uh, the goal this year is to change the lives of one million people. Obviously, I can't do that in a one-on-one -on -one capacity, but one-on-one -on -one work is where I live. It's I'm like, you know, that's my thing. Uh, but obviously, some of it is going to be in speeches, lectures like this, uh, my books, uh, videos, and a bunch of other ways. But we are expanding our reach. But yes, I want to work with as many people as possible. And the thing is that I want to leave everyone with is simple, simple as this. If you are alive and breathing, you're still in the fight. And there's the chance to change it. And yeah. the thing is, a lot of times we simply don't know how. What I specialize in is showing people how to get that done. That's right. That's right. And I, I can I just put your email in the chat. It's see, is that is that okay for people to email you, or would you? Oh yeah, that, that's the best way to do it. Okay. Um, I check my emails twice to three times a day, and I respond uh, within uh, twelve hours most times, no later than. Uh, somebody left their information for me to call. If you can get that to me, if you see it. Yes. Okay. I'm not so, going to call the name. Okay. Yeah, so. Yes. Yeah, so there's a, um, another one of our expert guests wants to touch base with you. So I'll connect you via chat right now. Okay. That works. Um, for me. But, and there's one before we wrap, I just want to make sure you saw this. There's a comment that says my husband is very old school and confronts every situation pretty much. My way or the highway, I'm totally opposite. I want to talk it out. I'm finding it difficult to find balance in dealing with my son's depression and anxiety without feeling pulled in all directions. I'm exhausted. Ooh, I can relate to the exhaustion part. But okay. can the, you uh, uh, the, address the, that? There are, for, there are two things, two points to this. Number one is, is your husband open to talking to someone about helping your son and how he can better help your son? because I would like to speak with him because I come from the place he comes from and I understand how that feels and how it works. Um, you know, the old school is get up off your butt and figure it out. Uh, I'm not going to put up with it. If I told you to do something, that's what I expect you to do. I'm not, I don't have no back talk. I don't care how about, I don't care how you feel, get up and get, get to it because that's the way we were reared. And definitely our parents were reared. Like you don't have, you're a black man. You have time to be depressed. Get up. And the problem is that doesn't fit in this day and age. It, it, it sounds good to a guy like me because I've had to man up, but you got to be built to be able to respond that way. And it still comes at a cost. You don't just sit up and ignore what's going on. You're sad for a reason. You're overwhelmed for a reason and sitting up ignoring it doesn't change it. So the first part of it is I would love to talk with him if he's willing to talk. If not, you got to hold your ground and you've got to be the counterbalance because if he's not, if he's not going to move a budge on it, then that's got to be some balance from your son because what you don't want to do is force him into a corner and he feel unheard. So you've got to be the ear. Now I don't mean enable him, but you got to be an ear because there's a cry for something. And if, if necessary, you got to find somebody to help you decipher the cry. What is actually, where's this coming from? And unfortunately, if your husband is where he is and he's not budging and he's that kind of guy, he's not budging. You know, I, I know that because I grew up in a house with a man that didn't budge. But luckily I had a grandmother 
who did. It created balance. And, you know, I just got to learn, you know, this is how he is. He ain't moving on it. You know, don't expect him to move on it. Learn how to move with it. And so uh, that that's that. So uh, well, definitely get in, get, in, get in contact with me and see if there's something that I can help you help you do as far as that. I'm really concerned about our young black males right now mm-hmm. because uh, not only is depression on a spike. Uh, I went to the University of Houston uh, during a time that Leroy Burrell was the one of the world class sprinters at the school. Uh, and even though Carl had graduated at the time, he was still training there because he was still competing. So we had Joe Deloach, Lee Rubber, I mean, Olympic sprinters that were a part of the school. And now Lee Rubber is the coach at the school, and he actually coached his son, who was a world class sprinter, but he took his life last August. And so that one hit home because of a number of different reasons of just being aware of the family and being, you know, knowing the family to a certain extent. Uh, but just connectivity to school because he ran for University of Houston. I mean, the gifted sprinter, 26 years old. Uh, and if not, I'm not mistaken, um, the um, Ian, Ian uh, Alexander Jr. was 26 years old. Um, and then there was another person right after him yeah. that was 26 yeah. years old. And so I'm going, I don't know and what it is. One of our Sunrise Village uh, callers, her son committed suicide last summer. And he was 24. And so it's just everywhere. And it's really um, concerning and really sad. So I, uh, we all share the same concern. And I think what you said earlier, and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Kelly Chapman, but what you said earlier around having faith over fear is really the biggest thing we can do. Because if we lead and parent with fear, you know, about our children, because we are so afraid of what society is going to face them with and what happens when they walk out the door every day. If we lead our parenting that way, then um, it's just, it's not a good situation because we're saying no all the time. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, no. You know, and teenagers, I think you said this in one of your previous talks, teenagers are meant to explore and are meant to, you know, figure out who they are. And they need to have some guidance, but not so much uh, rigidity, I guess would be the word. Um, And so the faith part that you talked about, I think is so critical and relaxing some of the reins that we want to hold on to our children with so that they can walk on their journey and we can guide them with love and compassion, as you've already also said. Did you want to comment or just make one last comment, Dr. Willis, before we close it out today? Actually, I'll go on what Tiffany Casey just uh, pushed. We really, what we need to start doing is more preventative, and that is monitoring the screen time of our children because social media is contributing greatly to the self-image deficiencies that our children are experiencing, which also lead to things like depression, uh, and so many other issues that impact their functionality. Um, I think that is where we need to start because here's the thing. While there's a spike, 7% between 2013 and 2019, we're actually leading in suicide in children between the age of five and 11. 
those are babies. But guess what the common denominator is? All of them have phones. And so now school bullying doesn't end when you leave the campus. It continues on and it and it happens. They're on their screen. They're checking their Snapchat. They're checking their Instagram. They're checking their TikTok. And they're just getting bombarded with hate. You know, and they're losing themselves and trying to find themselves. And it's happening. And social media is one of the greatest uh, contributors to this phenomenon. And we need to be aware of it. Uh, Mary and I both have been very vocal about monitoring screen time. Uh, especially from when they're when they're early in life. I agree. Everything is right there in the palm of their hand. Well, I want to be um, respectful of people's time and first say thank you so much again for being here, sharing such wisdom with us this morning, Dr. Wallace. Really appreciate you, um, and thank you to all the callers for being here and asking such great questions. Um, and uh, I'm going to turn over to Kelly Chapman, who will close us out with a prayer this morning. Thanks. And uh, Dr. Wallace, I just wanted to agree with what you said, because I noticed even with the game Minecraft, my niece was having some really disturbing conversations with strangers and they were bullying types of conversations <laughs> on, a, on a game. Right. So there's a lot going on that we don't know if we're not paying attention to what's happening on those screens. And thanks for coming. <clears throat> Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We give thanks today, O oh Lord, that when we are in the midst of difficulties, you love us. You go before us and you are with us. We thank you for the man of God, the esteemed Dr. Rick Wallace. We thank you for his knowledge, his wisdom and understanding. We thank you for this mighty man of valor who is a living demonstration of positive father fatherhood and how a husband should love his wife as Christ loves the church. Lord, we come to you today as humbly and as authentically as we can, knowing that nothing is unknown nor a surprise to you. Yet some of us come to you, Lord, this morning, honestly feeling frustrated and tired. Every week we come together as a community and seek your face. We take the learning and the guidance of the experts and show love to our child. We set boundaries, practice self-care and more. Yet at this very moment, we feel the pressures of the crises happening in the world and the ones that continue to happen in our own home. We feel helpless at times. We wonder, will things change? So we ask for your forgiveness. Your scriptures tell about when Jesus said to a man, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We say, I believe Lord, help my unbelief. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. Help us, God, as we navigate the anxiety our children are feeling. Help us as they face depression and sadness and fatigue and feel like no one cares. Change us all genetically and physically. Help us as parents to focus on our destiny instead of our situation. And as we focus with increasing faith, 
faith, we pray a hedge of protection over their lives. You, oh God, are a shelter. And we place our children under your care, trusting that they are yours, God. And we thank you in advance that all will go well within our household as we serve the Lord. We are excited to wake up tomorrow morning and say, I am grateful. We thank you that as we delight ourselves in you, that you will give us the desires of our heart. And we decree and declare, as your word says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Giving all praise and honor to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Kelly. And everybody, thank you for that. So great on time. Um, really appreciate you all. And Dr. Wallace, always a pleasure. Thank you for your wisdom. And everybody on the call, let's have a fantastic week. Yes. Uh, yes. And we'll be back next Sunday. So have a beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you for being here. And uh, we'll be back next Sunday, 9 a.m. Take care, everyone. Thank you.